Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab those and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. That's where we will be continuing our time as we study through this incredibly helpful book of the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to uh, grab one, or if you're not comfortable getting up, um, uh, you can just raise your hand, and we'd like to put one in your hands. Um, we do have those avail- available for you. Um, but Nehemiah 9 this morning is quite lengthy, and we will read all of this together and discuss it. Um, we have a lot to accomplish this morning and not a lot of time. So, uh, Nehemiah 9, you follow along as I read. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabana, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chaniah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heavens worship you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of earth or of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his to his offering the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. And gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that, uh, that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not Withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples, all allotted to them every from to allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land, and Sihon, king of Heshbon, in the land of Og, king of Bashan, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their, with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with the, them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets and had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rested they did, not, they did evil again before you, And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and would not obey. Many years you bore with them, and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, And the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people. 
since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit this morning to glean the truth that you have for us as we consider this chapter in Nehemiah. God, for the the way in which we are to think about our own life and our own faith and our own relationship with you, may we see the truth of your word this morning and may we apply it to our lives that we would grow as disciples and followers of you. God, maybe for the first time, may we um, give our lives to you. I ask, God, that you would be with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I watch TV, one of the favorite type of television shows uh, are police procedural type shows, crime type shows. Uh, I grew up watching the original Law and Order and all of the spinoffs since then. I watch several uh, TV type uh, crime shows. Uh, I, I don't know why. They're just, they're fascinating and appealing to me and I understand that they are mostly all fiction and, and just sometimes outrageous in what they uh, display. But one of the greatest elements of those shows, one of the greatest parts as you get into the episode is when it t- comes time for the confession. You have the, the criminal in the box and the detectives that are there interrogating, trying to get this person to confess. One of the better shows, in my opinion, is uh, Law & Order Criminal Intent, where it is sort of focused in on why the the crime was committed on behalf of the individual. And the main detective character uh, in that show, Robert Gorin, uh, had a, a unique way of interrogating where he would play mind games and act in a sort of a bizarre manner. And it was, it was so troubling to the, the criminal, they couldn't help but confess because it, it just they couldn't take it anymore in the box. It was a great technique. But perhaps the greatest tool 
and necessity employed to getting the criminal to confess is evidence, right? That, that it, it's hard to argue or deny something when there is sufficient evidence that would show and prove your guilt unmistakably. The, the, the legal term is beyond any reasonable doubt, that when you have the evidence stacked against you to prove that you are guilty, you confess. I mean, why fight it, right? You've already been found out. And all confessions typically include the same elements. There is an admission of guilt that you have done wrong, There is usually a recounting of what you've done, typically in a courtroom setting. When you plea uh, an admission of guilt, you are asked by the judge to to recount what you're guilty of. But it doesn't always include motive. Motive is not part of the confession all the time. Motive is what's used by the, the investigators to try to determine what was done and why it was done, but, but confessors don't always have to reveal their motive. This morning, we're talking about confession. The, the, the theme that we find here in Nehemiah 9 is the theme of confession, and, and confession is something we must do for our salvation. If you are going to be saved from your sins, found in Jesus Christ, if you have a hope in heaven one day, then it is clear in God's word that you must confess your sins. But confession isn't just a one-time event, I would argue this morning and, and hope to show you this morning as we work through this passage, that confession is something we ought to do often for our own sanctification. Because see, as we grow in Christ, as we seek to become disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, the um, necessity to confess things will come up time and time and time again. And really, this is a two-part sermon as I've studied through this section. Uh, chapter 9 actually accompanies chapter 10. You've, you've probably picked up on, we didn't actually finish all of 9 when we just read a minute ago. I left a verse out, so that is verse 38. That's because these two chapters are meant to go together. Uh, they're meant to be read and understood as sort of one passage all together. And when we think about confession, when we think about true confession, confession is always accompanied by true repentance. That's why the title of the sermon is called Confession and Repentance Part 1. Because there's confession, and confession always leads to repentance. And, And unfortunately, due to time, I was not confident that I would be able to cover both chapters all with with all that is there. And, and I didn't have enough time to gather our lunch orders. And so 
Uh, I was led by the Spirit to just split it up, and, and we'll cover it next week. And so this morning, we're, we're looking at Nehemiah 9 and the, the process and, and idea of confession, which will then lay the foundation to set us up next week for the idea of repentance. And so you're, you're stuck. It's a two-parter. You're obligated to be here next week. I'm sorry. That's just how it is. If you're not, you're going to miss the, the, the second part. But let's look and remember very quickly where we left the people of Israel in Nehemiah 8 because Nehemiah 8 helps us um, uh, understand what is now happening in the life of the people as we come into Nehemiah 9. In Nehemiah 8, we left off the people of Israel celebrating uh, what was called the festival or the feast of booths and other places it's also called the the festival of the feast of tabernacles same same festival same thing and you remember we we uh, considered how this was a a practice that was not had been not been done in probably 900 or more years that it was a command from the lord and and they had sort of neglected that command throughout the ages and it had not been done until this moment when they have the law read and they are convicted of it and they hear what is instructed in God's word. And so they begin to actually do what God's word tells them to do. And, and this sudden reclamation to full obedience in God's word rather than partial obedience, they had partially done it. They had picked and choose what was what was. Uh, for them and what wasn't for them, they decided that, that, hey, you know what? God's word instructs it. We're going to do what his word instructs. We're not going to pick and choose anymore. If it says it, we will do it. We'll give our lives to it. That's what they've done here. And that reclamation has moved them and convicted them. You remember, even to the point of weeping. They wept. They Cry. They were moved to tears at the hearing of his word because they recognized their own sin. Last week, you remember how we considered that, that just the, the ability of hearing God's word read aloud, that, that his word is so powerful and so uh, um, filled with wonder and awe that just to hear God's word read aloud has a power within it to affect people. The, the quote we read from a, a theologian last week said that the word of God, when read, has the power to transform lives today because the Bible convicts and changes and guides life. That that if God's word does nothing else in our lives, if it, if it is useful for nothing else, it at least confronts us with our own sin before a holy God. Now, mind you, the Bible does so much more for us. But, but on a surface level, the Bible, when it is read aloud, not, not necessarily by you personally, just just you in your seats hearing the word being read aloud, which is what happened here in Nehemiah 8. It has the ability to confront us with sin, 
cut us to the core and move us in such a way where we would feel conviction of our sin and then respond to that conviction. Here the people have been so convicted of their sin, they begin to weep. But it is in hearing this and, 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 but it is in the hearing and the conviction that they are reminded of the parts of God's word that they are not doing, and they renew their lives so that they will do it. I wonder this morning how many times that happens to us. How many times we hear God's word read, or, or maybe we read it for ourselves and we go, wow, I'm not doing that. We hear someone preach and proclaim God's word, and we say, wow, I've not been following God as faithfully as I should have been, and the conviction that comes with that. Don't wonder, do you ever hear preaching, or, or maybe even just conversation, Maybe you listen to something on the radio or, or you're talking with someone and they share something and, and, it, and that, that thing, whatever it is, seems to come up over and over and over again. Maybe you have, uh, you, you, you hear a sermon in a Sunday and it kind of sits with you and then you're talking to a friend who did not hear that sermon at all, but, but they bring up conversation and that that subject that thing that convicted you so much in that Sunday sermon is now the subject of the conversation you're having with a person who didn't hear the sermon but just by chance it happened to come up and then you maybe read something a few days later and and it just seems that over and over and over again this thing that would convict you because you are not doing what the Lord has instructed to do in his word keeps popping up in your life. Has that ever happened to you? It has me. Do you think maybe it's the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention? Do you think maybe it's the Holy Spirit trying to convict you and, and tell you, hey, listen, you've not been following God's word as he has ordained you to. Hearing the word and being convicted by it brought about an opportunity to reconcile and obey. The, the people had a chance to reconcile their lives and to obey. And, and the result of this we saw in Nehemiah 8 was a, a great rejoicing. You see there as they, as they celebrate the booze and, and they're actually living in these sort of Huts that they've made out of sticks and leaves. In verse 17, it says that they did all this and there was very great rejoicing. Like following God's word, who knew? Following God's word would bring about great rejoicing in the life. But what it also did, the conviction and, and hearing of God's word also did something else. It revealed other areas in life in which they were unfaithful. See, there was this initial step, this initial uh, sort of step toward obedience, and that obedience sparked a remarkable joy found in the Lord that ultimately 
matured into a desire to take a serious look at the state of their lives and then deal with some things. If you look at the timeline of how all this plays out, it's almost a month before they're able to do anything. That, that Nehemiah 8 starts off the, the, the second day, and then Nehemiah 9 starts off in the 24th day. Like significant time has passed where they've not been able to do anything with their conviction, but it's been on their hearts to do something. And then we get to our passage today where finally they act and they confess their sin. And we'll see in chapter 10 that confession leads to repentance. But we want to talk about confession this morning. What is it and what do we see here uh, being done as the people confess. There's just three principles to look at this morning. Number one, as we look at confession and we consider confession and what it means for us as well in our day, confession, number one, is public. Confession is public. Look there in verse 1 through 3. It says, Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with all with the earth on their heads it says that they're gathered and assembled and so everyone together the entire city is all gathered together in a public nature but but look at the the couple things to consider as as we think about the public nature of confession the first one we want to consider is their attire we want to look at their attire. Look at what it says again in verse 1, is that they're gathered together with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. Or your version might say with ashes on their heads. This is a, a practice that had been done within the people of Israel that would indicate uh, mourning or grieving or some sort of outward sign of distress. And and the sackcloth was really just a, a, a garment made out of goat hair. It was itchy and uncomfortable. And, and they would take uh, dirt and dust and, and cover their heads with it. And, and it, was, it was a really sort of a humiliating look. But it was a look that was done to signify outwardly that there is something going on inwardly. That, that, that they wanted people to know in a very public manner that something was going on within them, and so they expressed that outwardly, that, that they had this burden over the fact that there was sin in their life, and now they're making that known through their clothing as they enter into this space of confession, and, and, and as I thought through that and I read through that, I, I went, man, this is not what we do today. Not in the sense we don't put on sackcloth and ashes. I don't mean that. That was a specific practice in a specific time. 
But we don't show outward expressions of what's going on in our hearts today, do we? Especially if it means dealing with sin in our lives or feeling grief in our lives. See, our mentality, what you would find in the mentality of the world today, is that it would be to our shame if someone were to find out that we have a sin or a struggle. Like, how embarrassing would it be for us if we were to be honest and real with one another that that we're dealing with some things internally? And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. What's like the default answer when someone asks you how it's going? It's fine. It's good. Things are great. Wonderful. Right? We, we have all these sort of stock answers that we give people because to actually expose ourselves and let them in and have a glimpse at our hearts for a second... That's just unbearable. That would be to our shame and to our demise. I mean, how weird and uncomfortable would it be if we actually answered honestly? Like, it's not okay. I'm dealing with this, or I'm wrestling with this, or I'm struggling with this sin. Like, the shame and embarrassment that would bring, right? It shouldn't be so. It should not be so. Listen, like rest in this. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. Every single person. I don't care who you are, where you come from, or what you've done, or what you haven't done. Every single person, past, present, and future, has sinned. Sinned. We are born with a sin nature. It is part of our DNA. We are inclined to sin. We've all done it. And, and although that sin is forgiven for those who repent and believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. Life on this earth, as we sojourn in this temporary place, will be filled with times where we will wrestle against flesh and blood and spirit, and we will sin occasionally. It's, it's going to happen. Like, just find comfort in that. There is no need to be embarrassed by the fact that you make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The body of Christ, especially, should be the safest place to be transparent about your struggle with sin in your life because we all do it. We all share in that struggle. And if someone says they don't, well, guess what? They've just joined the club because they're a liar. We all, every single one of us, wrestle with sin. And James 5, verse 16 tells us to confess our sins one to another. Why? So that we can pray for one another. He goes on later to say that if you find yourself caught in sin and you as a brother are able to pull that brother or sister out of sin, you have snatched him from hell and you have reaped coals on his 
head. You have purified him. You have restored him. You have redeemed him. We are to let each other know that we are struggling. Now, this does not mean that you have to air out all of your dirty laundry. You don't have to confess every single thing. Like there is, a, there is wisdom and discernment and discretion that should be practiced. Some people just don't, frankly, need to know certain things. But what we ought to be in the habit is of, of being transparent with each other rather than try to conceal it and stuff it down. Are you struggling this morning? Tell someone. Are you, are you wrestling with sin in your life and you, you feel defeated that it's just bearing its weight on you and there is no light at the end of the tunnel? Tell someone. Put on your sackcloth and your ashes and let it be known that there is grief in my life and I need you to see it. Because it's what God has instructed his people to do. And so we, we consider their attire that it was, it was not a hidden fact that they are, um, there is something going on within their life that is moving them to a place of confession. But then the second thing we want to consider is their action. Verse 2, it says the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. As we consider the, the public aspect of confession, it's not just in their attire, but also in their action. See, it was not uncommon in that day and age to find people uh, sort of dwelling amongst uh, the, the nation of Israel who were not ethnically Jewish. They were not born of the, the sort of Hebrew ethnic or culture. They were from somewhere else and they moved here. We have a great example of this. We live in Florida. No one who lives here is actually from here. We all come from some, well, you all come from somewhere. I was born here. I'm born and raised right here in Fort Myers, Florida. Grew up in the neighborhood literally across the street. Um, but that's not common, right? Everyone moves here. We need to have less people moving here, but that's a sermon for another day. But it's not uncommon to find people that live and dwell amongst the people of Israel. They are foreigners and sojourners. They pass through all the time. In fact, it was such a common practice that the Old Testament law, the, the law given by God to his people, actually had some conditions on what they are to do with them, that they are to treat them in a certain way. They are, they are supposed to have a certain ethic and practice when it comes to uh, those that would be sojourners within the land. But, but this, this reality of people living and dwelling and mingling amongst the, the people of Israel, the, the ethnically Jewish people, became so common that, that people began, the Jewish people began to violate God's law and, and specifically violate it through 
the marrying or entering into a marriage covenant with those that are outside of God's people. And it was a big issue that, that went on and on and on. It, and it was a practice that God forbid long ago. He made it very clear that if you are a Jewish man, you are to marry a Jewish woman. Not because, as some in the world would say today, that God is racist. It's because God is holy. And he was raising up a people unto himself that would be holy. And he made a covenant with these people that if they would follow and worship him, that he would be their God and they would be his people. But it was to a specific group, not everyone at the time. And we have to understand that the reason they are to marry within their own community is because what was happening is marrying outside of the community was poisoning the inside of the community. That as they married outside of the family of God, that that, that uh, culture and religious practice and other things began to to trickle into the family of God, and it was leading them astray, and it was poisoning them against the Lord, and you started to see this departure from the things of, of Yahweh, the holy God, the one whom they are covenanted to, to worshiping and following and giving their lives to these pagan outside idols. And so God said, that's, that's not okay, that if you are to marry, you are to marry within the family of God so that you will not be so easily led astray to worship other things. But the people of Israel neglected this and ignored this, and they married people outside of the tribe, and so they were led astray. This is the great downfall of Solomon. King Solomon had a thousand women in his life. Lord, help him. And almost all of them were from different tribes, different cultures, different ethnicities, different places, not within the family of God. Now, Solomon was a successful king, probably the most successful king in the entire Jewish monarchy. He did more for the kingdom in terms of wealth and kingdom advancement than any other king that, that uh, preceded or followed him. And yet, he was led astray. And did not follow the Lord because his wives were not followers of the Lord. They worshipped idols. And the Bible says that they led his heart to do the same. Ezra himself would address this specific issue of, of outside marriage within the nation like 20 years before we get to Nehemiah 9. So this, uh, this issue has already come up, that there is outside influence that is affecting the people of God that is causing them to be led astray because that outside influence is not from God, it's from others. And so they recognize that and they say, this is not right and we need to separate ourselves 
as we seek to confess and recommit ourselves. As we seek to confess and repent and follow the Lord, we need to separate. And there's two reasons for this separation. Number one is because this had to do with the covenant between God and Israel. And so only the covenant people would participate in the time of repentance and confession. Again, non-ethnic Jews have no place in national confession because they're not of the nation that is doing the confessing, right? And so they separate to, to distinguish who the ethnically Jewish people are and who is not, even if that means having to leave your wife and your children. Just let that sink in for a minute. Something that you have given your life to, something that you have committed to, even in something like marriage, there is a um, there is an element of confession that would uh, determine if you are going to be serious about your confession. You need to separate from that which could lead you astray. Now, I'm not saying if you're married to an unbeliever, go get a divorce. Because God would have some strong words against that as well. I am saying, build your life on God and his word first. Not the person you're married to. If you're going to seek the Lord and repent and give your life to him. Build your life on God and his word first. Even if that means separating some from whom you are joined to in marriage. Jesus said it very plainly. You're to follow after me it should be like you hate your family. That, that the priority of life should be arranged in such a way that it seems like you can't stand your brother or sister or father or mother or spouse because of the great love and affection and desire that you have for me, Jesus, that, you should, that should be of such prominence in your life that it looks like or it seems like everyone else is cast away. We are to separate ourselves. Again, this reinforces the desire that God would set apart a people that are unadulterated by pagan religious influences from outside cultures. It's an important step in the process of confession that removing yourself from a situation that could possibly cause you to stumble and fall is a key critical part to understanding confession as a whole. Matthew Henry wrote that those that intend to join themselves to God must separate themselves from sin and sinners. For what communion hath light with darkness. So not only do we, do we see a, a, uh, a, an, an attire, an outward representation of 
fasting in sackcloth. But remember, because they are doing this in such a way that would expose them and leave them vulnerable, it would expose them and leave them susceptible to, to all kinds of emotional entanglement and things, right? That they are seeking to fill themselves up with the Lord, and, and thus, because of the vulnerability and the exposure of heart that they presently have, that, that there is potential to fall victim to temptation and to sin. And so they separate themselves from those things so that all of their focus, all of their attention, all of their desire can be set on the Lord, not on something else that might pull them away or lead them away or distract them or even pull them into a place of sin and temptation. And any serious desire or action of confession of sin in a person's life should lead them to put as much distance between them and whatever sin and temptations they have. If something is pulling you away from Jesus, it's not a good thing. If, if you're... If you're your confession is that Jesus is Lord and yet there are things in your life that would hinder you or pull you away from them, even something like family. That's, that's not a blessing to you. That is a hindrance to you. And the Bible says you should separate from it. Not cut it off, not disown it, not ever have any sort of relationship with it again, but to reorient your priorities to a point where Jesus is primary, faith is primary, God is primary, and everything else falls after that. And, and it would have been pretty quick to, to discover who was serious or not. I mean, you can look around the scene and, and see, well, Joe over there doesn't have his sackcloth on. He must not be all that serious. Or Susie over there isn't quite leaving and separating herself as she ought to. She's, she's bringing some stuff along with her that's just going to drag her down. They would have noticed quickly who did not separate and would have become easily apparent for those who say they confess something, but then continue to surround themselves with the thing that does them harm. We see the same thing today. We, we hear people confess things or say things, but yet it seems like there's very little action to separate themselves from the things that are dragging them down. See, without separation, they're... Confession doesn't bear much, if at all, real significance. You can't confess your sins and keep sinning. You can't confess wrong and keep doing wrong. We teach this to our children all the time, don't we? I'm sorry I did that. Well, you've done it ten times in a row now. I don't quite believe that you're actually sorry. You can't confess without separation. So it's public. But the second thing we see very quickly is that it's personal. Look there in verse 3. 
They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord and their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. The people are gathered together corporately. We've seen that. We've said it's, a, it's sort of a public event that's happening. But, but the rebuilding that we're talking about, that's been the whole theme of Nehemiah so far, right? Is, is to rebuild. And we even looked back several weeks ago and said that, that the rebuilding of the wall was really just a, uh, uh, an object lesson to the rebuilding that God is seeking to do within the lives of the people. And, and the rebuilding process is being done on sort of an individual level. See, as individual lives are rebuilt, then the fellowship as a whole is rebuilt. And as the individual faith is rebuilt and strengthened, so the fellowship as a whole is rebuilt and strengthened. And so they're confessing corporately here, but each person would have recognized their own personal sin and it says that they're gathered here and they make confession of that and not only do they make confession of it but they spend a pretty significant time i mean a a quarter of a day is no short amount of time they spend a quarter of the day confessing their sins see confession can't happen for you if it's not by you Confession, by its very nature, is uniquely personal. That you personally, as an individual, must come to grips with what is being done, what you have done, or what you believe, or what you would claim, and you must make that proclamation. Paul felt this burden in Romans 9 when he wished a curse upon himself if it meant that his fellow believer, his fellow Jewish countrymen could be saved. He said, listen, if it means that everyone would have any opportunity to be saved, I'll surrender my salvation before the Lord. But it doesn't work that way. You can't have someone confess on your behalf. I mean, think about it. Like, it holds no significance for the criminal to have someone confess on their behalf. That's not how the system works. Confession is a personal effort. But in that personal effort, in that, in that process, confession we see here is an act of worship. Confession is, is worship. And that's sort of, sort of interesting to think about, isn't it? That, that the realization that confession, confessing our sins can actually be an act of worship unto the Lord? How can that be? God, I've sinned against you, praise God. Doesn't quite make sense, does it? Well, we'll think about what confession is. It's a conviction brought upon, brought upon you by the Holy Spirit. See, in Romans 3, if we believe Romans 3 and, and what it says, that no one... And no one means anyone and everyone that no one seeks after God and no one does good. The world is completely depraved. But as followers of Jesus, we have the promise that he's given us that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us to help us and to convict us. 
Like, that's amazing to think about, that in our own conviction, which would then lead us to confession and repentance, we would not get there if it weren't for the fact that God, the Holy Spirit, makes it so. It's because we convict, we are convicted and confess that we worship God to begin with. Like, he doesn't just leave us alone to figure it out. He's not left us alone. He has provided his blood for our salvation and his spirit for our sanctification. That's an amazing thing. And and I would say that the, the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin in our lives is a massive grace of God. Because the alternative is, if we're not all that convicted, if we don't feel a sense of conviction about our sin, if we don't feel like it's all that big a deal, friends, there's a good possibility you might not actually be saved. Like if you are examining the scriptures and you see what God prescribes as sin, as an offense to him, and it is not moving you to a place where you you feel all that troubled about it. That is a sign that the Holy Spirit is not actually with you. Because the Holy Spirit leads you to conviction where you would confess and repent of your sins. And so it's, a, it's an act of worship for us that we are, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, it's not God I've sinned against you, Praise God, it's, it's God, praise you that you have led me to understand that I've sinned against you and will you forgive me? Thank you for revealing that to me. Thank you for that grace in my life that you have not left me alone, but you convict me and you lead me and you guide me. The last thing we considered as we look at personal confession is the fact that they Continue, continue to seek the Lord. So it's, it's not only that they um, do it personally and they do it as an act of personal worship, but you see that they continue to seek the Lord. Verse 3, it says, They stood in their place and they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day and they worshiped the Lord their God. Further down in verse 5, it says to the the... the Levites instruct to stand up and bless the Lord, who is your God from everlasting to everlasting. There's, there, the, what, what kicked off and started this whole thing is a, a, a reclamation to God and his word. And, and it doesn't stop there. That hearing his word has moved them to the, this place of obedience. And it would only seem like a natural fit that they would want to continue to seek out the Lord through his word that they might grow in him more. See, the only way, the primary way that we have in, in knowing the Lord and his will is revealed through his word. And although the, the initial step of obedience is good, without seeking him in his word... We're really selling ourselves short, ultimately, 
of what it means to confess our sins and trust in him and seek after him. And so there's this nature of it being personal, but lastly, we see that it is precise. They, they for the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 6 all the way to the end, they, they sort of give a, a history lesson of the entire nation all the way from creation to that present moment. And, and they say some things and make some claims that are specific and precise. But we want to examine what exactly they say. The first thing that they say, that they confess, the, the precise manner in which they confess, number one, is who God is. Look there in verse 6. It says, you are the Lord, you alone, singular, one God. Contrary to what Oprah would believe, there are not many paths to God, or many paths to heaven, there is one, one God. We don't get to determine our own God, or our own system of belief, or our own faith. There is but one God, Yahweh is his name, and we worship him alone. That's what the people here proclaim, that there is just one, only God, primary. But he's not just uh, uh, a primary alone figure. Number two, we see that he is creator and sustainer. In verse six, it says, you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and that and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. <laughs> in, in recent times, recent years, there has been an attempt by, um, and, and it, it's, it's, a, it's an oxymoron because the people making these claims are incredibly intelligent, but I'm going to call them weaker for a minute. There has been an attempt to reconcile evolution and creation, and they call it theistic evolution, that God sort of starts, and then the evolutionary process takes over, and that's where we are in the world today. That, that it wasn't from the goo, it was from God, but he just sort of started the process, and everything else follows. That's not an accurate view of creation. The Bible is very, very clear and specific. Everything that we experience is from God's spoken word. Animals didn't evolve from other animals, and, and humans didn't evolve from animals, and, and so on and so forth. God spoke it, and it came into, into being. He is the creator of everything. But not only is he the creator of everything, he is the sustainer of everything. I mean, think about for just a quick second the fact that the world spins in its place on its axis with such precision to move like a sixteenth of a degree off of its axis would either cook us or freeze us. I mean, that is incredible precision. 
That is incredibly accurate, that the Lord God sustains. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, one of the great Christological passages that would, that would give about, talk about the preeminence of, of Jesus Christ, it says, Colossians 1 verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. So who does the creating? Jesus Christ. The Lord speaks it and Jesus creates it. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It's all about Jesus. It's all for his glory. Verse 17. And, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That it is by Jesus' power and authority as the Son of God that all things hold together. The reason why the earth does not tip off its access to cook us or freeze us, is because Jesus Christ holds it all together. The reason that your life goes the way it goes, whether good or bad, is because Jesus holds your life all together. The, the, the confession that they make here with precision is that, God, we recognize you've created everything and that you preserve it. You hold it all together. There is nothing that we can do. It's actually quite freeing because there is nothing you can do within your control and within your power that would somehow influence the way that your life is going to go. God in his sovereignty holds it all together. He preserves all of it, all of creation. But then the third, or the, the next thing we see is that he is the covenant maker to man that he has given his covenant to abraham and he brought him out of the land of ur and he he changed his name to i'm sorry to abram and he changed his name to abraham that that god this singular creative god initiates relationship with us that that we in our sin as romans 3 says turn from him we don't seek him we don't desire him and yet he initiates towards us he seeks to save us. He's faithful. The next confession they make that they get with precision is that he is faithful to his word. He never wavers or fails in his promises. And the last part they get is that he, the last confession they make in their precise confession is that he is righteous that it is absolute and perfect and divine, not by human understanding or human measure as we try to understand the will of God, but his will is perfect. See, what we often try to do is, in understanding God's righteousness, is apply our own sort of human ethic or human morality to it. We can't do that. God has a, a righteousness that exists above our understanding. And you just look at what they've said here, all the, the, the many times that as a nation they have departed from God and yet he is faithful to them. 
He feeds them. He clothes them. He provides for them. He cares for them. He's a faithful God when he doesn't have to be. Even to the point of sending his son to the cross for our forgiveness. He is faithful. The next thing they confess, not only who God is, but what he has done. If you read through this section, you see a continued phrasing of, or a, a repeated phrasing throughout the chapter in the word you. God, you have done this, and you have done, therefore you have done. By you, it has been done. There's this you, you, you expression. That's important to our confession because we, when we confess and recognize not only who God is, but we confess and recognize that it's only God who's done it. We've not done anything. God, in his grace and in his mercy, has done all of it. That is incredibly freeing for us because there is nothing that we even could do. And yet God has done it. The third thing we see as we close and, 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 and consider this is they not only precisely confess who God is or what he has done, but they precisely confess how they have sinned. You, you see them actually give specific detail to their sin. See, a lot of times, I think in our day and age, we like to sort of blanket everything so as to um, not make it seem as bad. Again, we teach this with our kids, at least I do in our home. When, when one of my kids wrongs each other, we make them go apologize, but we make them apologize at, to the specific thing that they've done. Not just, brother, I'm sorry, but brother, I'm sorry that I hit you in the face with that toy. Right? There is precision in their apology. There is to be precision in our confession. What are you confessing that you've done? And why do we do that? It's because we want to understand and reveal to ourselves and let the Holy Spirit help reveal to us our deficiencies that we might then, in our sackcloth, make those known to our fellow brothers and sisters that we might have accountability then so that we would not fall victim to those things again. I wrestle with this specific issue. God, I confess I am sorry. I repent of this specific issue. Now you move past it. See, generalized confession, generalized, well, I do some bad things, that's not helpful. And as we'll see next week when we talk about repentance, I'll give you a little preview. Repentance means to turn from something, to go away from something. You can't turn from something that you've not made known. You can't speak in generalities and then act with specificity. It doesn't work that way. You have to be precise and specific as to what you have confessed. And what do they confess? They confess disobedience. They confess idolatry. They confess adultery. They confess murder. They confess blasphemy. They confess all kinds of things. And I bet if we were to take a moment in our lives and actually think about the specific sins that we wrestle with, we'd have a long list as well. In fact, 
as we move into sort of the closing part of our service, as is our practice, we take the Lord's Supper, the first Sunday of the month. And you've heard me say this before, but as we enter into this time as the body of Christ, taking the Lord's Supper, we want to do so with pure hands and a clean heart. Having been made right with God in our sin. And we're going to have just a minute this morning as we, we prepare to enter into this time that we would do just what the Israelites have done in confessing our sins. Because see, at the heart of this confession, at the heart of Nehemiah chapter 9, there is a desire to repent and follow the Lord. And, and what you see them do in their confession is they, they sort of put it all on the table. They say, God, here is everything that they might have clean hands and pure hearts and follow God again. And so as we enter into this time in the Lord's Supper, we get to do a similar thing as the body of Christ. We get to bear our hearts and our souls to him, making confession for our sins that we might enter into his fellowship through the Lord's table, remembering the, the broken body and shed blood for those sins of Jesus Christ. But there's some instructions I want to give first because, see, in Paul's day, the Lord's Supper was abused and not taken seriously and neglected. And even in today's time, the Lord's Supper is abused and not taken seriously and neglected. And so my first instruction would be that, first of all, the Lord's Supper is for the believer only. And if you're here this morning and you've not repented of your sins, you have not turned from them and made the Lord Jesus Christ Lord and Savior and King of your life, this next few moments is not for you. And I would ask you that as the, the plate comes by and you receive the elements, that you would not take those elements, that you would just remain in your seat and maybe think on and reflect of your sin and the idea of confession and what God has done for you on your behalf. But this is a time for the believer. And I would even add, if you've not been walking with the Lord, if you've not committed your life to him fully, maybe you've been a sort of on the fence or you've been walking in a pattern of sin that has gone unconfessed and unrepented of, then this time isn't for you either. You need to get right with the Lord before you enter into the fellowship of the, of the Lord's Supper. Because to do so, and what we see in 1 Corinthians 11, is that there are people, because they have done this in an improper way, they are actually finding themselves physically ill. That sin can actually make you physically ill when done and, 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 and unconfessed and everything is, is improper. And so, for the believer or for the unbeliever, rather, this time is not for you, but if you are a believer in good standing in a church body, you are welcome to join us at the table. If there's no issue with 
Any sort of discipline at your church or no, no hang-up within the church that you are joined to in fellowship, we have an open communion policy. And so if you are a, a believer walking with the Lord in good standing with your local church, you are welcome to receive these elements with us. As a testimony to your faith and as an as a, um, example of the greater body of Christ in which we exist, we would be honored to have you with us. And so I'm going to pray, and then you, we're going to do it just a little different this morning. You're going to remain in your seats, and the plate will be passed to you. You can take uh, a cup with the elements in it, and we'll proceed once everyone has it. But uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a few moments of quietness just in your seat for you to do business with the Lord, and then the plate will come after that. But let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. We thank you that you have saved us from our sin. God, we confess publicly and personally and precisely that we need you. God, I pray that as we enter into this time of Lord's Supper, that if there is something that is in our hearts that burdens us or weighs us down, or if there is unconfessed sin existing within our lives, that we would do that first before we take this supper, lest we reap condemnation upon ourselves. God, for those that might be unbelievers that are not trusting in you or following you, they've not repented of their sins and have given their lives to you, I pray that they would see that they are indeed a sinner in need of a great Savior, and that they would do that this morning. We love you, Father. We thank you for this time. 